Hi everyone, it's Stu here, your dulcet-toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favourite true crime podcast? British Murders, of course. I mean, who needs a 60-second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well-told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad-free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash British Murders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers. The True Cry Podcast. Right, Martin, we are live and recording. Martin Brunt, thank you for coming on the show and giving me your time. Before we get into the reason why we're here, which of course is your book that's recently come out a couple of months ago, I want to ask you a general question. If you and I were to meet uh, a social gathering, use your imagination as to what kind of gathering that may be, how would you describe yourself to me using, let's say, three words? What three words reflect who you are, perhaps your personality. It doesn't have to be what your job is, but what three words best describe yourself? Um, dedicated crime reporter. I tend to sort of think of myself in professional terms as a, as a crime reporter. I mean, I don't know quite how, how else I would describe myself outside of my profession. A dedicated human being. Okay, that's good. How do you think others would describe you using three words? Do you think others have the same view of you as you do? I hate the idea that um, I'm defined by my job. That's certainly the case. Um, All right guy. I hope other people see me as. That's two words, isn't it? That's two, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> maybe maybe it maybe it's three in some other um let's say up to yeah. three words we can say all right yeah. guy that's okay. okay all right guy yeah all right guy is that a common theme then do you find that you are often portrayed as a crime reporter are there preconceptions when say you you're introduced to someone new in the field um no i mean people i don't wear a a hat with a press ticket in the hat band so um and i don't sell myself as a crime reporter if i meet somebody new in fact i'm sometimes at pains to avoid um revealing certainly early on when i'm getting to know somebody new that that's what i do for a living because it does tend to dominate the conversation the thing about being um being a crime reporter or even any reporter if people ask you what you do and you say i'm a reporter they never say oh and move on people are intrigued and it goes to the heart of i suppose 
you know, one of the themes of the book is people's fascination with crime. So if I say, oh, well, I'm a reporter, they want to know more. And if you say I'm a crime reporter, they want to know even more. So for that reason, I hate that to dominate a conversation when I'm trying to get to know somebody, because there are there are many more facets to my personality, I hope, than the yeah. job I do. Yeah, it, it can sometimes be a burden, I imagine, if that's all you're perceived to be. Because like you say, we do have a fascination with true crime, specifically murder, but also mysteries, mm. all the different crime that's going on in the UK. You mentioned the book there, so that came out in April. It's called No One Got Cracked Over the Head for No Reason, Dispatches from a Crime Reporter. So this is on the back of the decades of work you've done reporting on crime, some of the most infamous crimes that the UK has seen. If we just rewind it a little bit, I'm going to check Wikipedia's accuracy now to see if it's up to date or not, which is always fun. It says you went to, to Soham Grammar School. Is that right? That's true. Yes. So you grew up in Soham? That... I, I grew up in Ely, which okay. is like the main, main, it's a city, but it's a very tiny city. And Soham is one of the many villages, one of the bigger villages around Ely. Okay. And you went on to study magazine journalism. Is that something you've always had a keen interest in? Did you want to be a journalist when you were growing up? I always wanted to be a journalist. I, I don't think I've ever considered any other profession. I didn't specifically want to go into magazine journalism, but I left school after my A-levels and did a course in London. It was an opportunity to go and live in London for a year. And there was this uh, course at the London College of Printing, as it was then at Elephant and Castle. It's now the London College of Communication. But it was a year's full-time course in London, periodical journalism. I ended up there, had a great time for a year, and ended up on a magazine called Power Laundry and Cleaning News, which eventually I decided wasn't as exciting uh, as I thought it might be. Uh, and then moved into newspapers and got into news journalism. So where does that love for journalism come from then? What was it about that field that sort of interested you so much? I, I think there were two things. Um, remember careers evenings at school. Mm -hmm. uh, so there'd be the assembly hall and uh, there'd be various local employers with little stands um, around. And as a sixth former, you visit each of them. And it was the editor of the Ely Standard who captivated my imagination more than any of those people flogging career ideas. Um, but more than that, and before that, I'd been a newspaper boy, a paper boy, uh, in the morning before school, in the evening, after school with a local evening paper. And it was really those early mornings when I was, I don't know, 12, 13, going to the station with the shop owner and collecting the bundles of still warm newspapers off the London train, tied up with strings, smelling very sweetly. Um, we on, on cold mornings, we used to stick our hands inside the bundles to thaw out. But So that was a very romantic idea of, of the newspaper industry. But I remember reading the headlines you know, particularly the crime stories, the disappearance of Muriel Mackay was a very big story um, that resonated with me. And I guess some, maybe subconsciously, I wanted to play a part 
in delivering or getting involved in those stories. I mean, there were the moon landings. Uh, there was the assassination of Martin Luther King. Big world events that seemed an awful long way from my little place in Ely. Uh, but Fleet Street was only 80 miles up the track. And um, it seemed a lot further away. But it was a rather romantic idea of newspapers and a, a dynamic industry and telling stories. You think with advances in technology, specific, specifically social media, the amount of online articles now, a lot of newspapers are online, the Telegraph, you can subscribe to it, for example. Has that romanticism gone down for you over the years as print newspapers have become less and less wanted by the public definitely um yeah the ro the romantic side of journalism i think has um has taken a a, a big dive um i th it was probably inevitable and you know i call it romantic um other people will say you know i'm just being nostalgic for a, for a lost time um, and the conditions, the working conditions in Fleet Street and other newspapers have changed dramatically. When I was in Fleet Street, when I, you know, I got there eventually, um, we were very well paid. We sometimes didn't have to work terribly hard. And it was a kind of glamorous existence. And we were paid well to travel around the world. I mean, I still am to a degree. But it just seemed um, a different way of doing journalism on a newspaper and you 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 know you had fierce rivalry as well which i enjoyed and you had you know talking off the top of your head down a telephone line to sometimes grumpy copy takers at the other end all of that added to um the romantic image of being a newspaper man and and newspaper men and they were largely men they tended to be glamorized in movies and and dramas, whereas today, um, newspaper or journalism generally is 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 very much trashed in Hollywood movies and TV dramas, with a few notable exceptions. Do you think because back then there was only a handful of newspapers being printed, so? In my head, I've got almost a sense of community. If, if everyone on the same street read the Telegraph, for example, you've all read the same articles. You've almost you're almost all reading from the same hymn sheet. Whereas now, there's so many different independent journalists. There's uh, you know contractors, freelance journalists. That's the word I'm looking for. Do you think at the moment there's too much information out there? I sometimes think there is. I mean, on a daily basis, when I'm covering. Um, a, a diary story or a, or a breaking story, I find there are so many different sources of information that it's it's very difficult to keep up to speed. Now, I'm lucky that I work in 24-hour news, so I can update stuff as I go along. But even, you know, with an opportunity every hour to update uh, the story I'm working on, I still find it difficult, some days impossible to cover every angle, to draw in from all those other sources, as journalists do every day. Uh, I sometimes find it difficult to cover the story as completely, perhaps, as I should do. But on the other hand, um, I think telling our viewers on Sky News what we know 
but also telling them what we don't know is is quite an important part of a of a dynamic news organization like 24-hour news so let's talk about your career with sky so you joined them for its launch in 1989 and you started covering the gulf and I want to say Balkan Wars. Am I saying that right? Balkan or Balkan? Yeah, 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 yeah. Balkan, Balkan, Balkan Wars. Balkan Wars. Yeah. So, so how did that job come about then? How did you become a part of that launch of what is now one of the biggest sort of news company corporations, at least in the UK, but worldwide also? Yeah, it was. Well, I suppose it was contacts, um, and and it was great timing for me because I didn't realise at the time, but in the late eighties. You know, the gravy train of Fleet Street was already beginning to hit the buffers. The conditions were being eroded. Um, newspaper sales were falling. And out of the blue, I got a call from the guy setting up Sky News saying, would I be interested in joining? And, you know, I'm naturally quite a shy guy. You know, I love hiding behind the anonymity of a byline on a newspaper. It hadn't ever occurred to me that I would become a TV reporter but I was intrigued enough to go along to the interview. And I met this charming Australian guy called John O'Lone, who Rupert Murdoch had appointed to set up this revolution uh, in news terms. Um, but the uh, the editor was also, the, the, sorry, the news editor was a guy called Nick Ferrari, who was a very old mate of mine. I'd known Nick for many years. We grew up in the same newspaper group. So between them, they persuaded me that this would be a good move to make. What I didn't really understand at the time was that they were struggling to attract any established TV reporters because nobody would take the risk. Nobody thought 24-hour news was going to last. Nobody thought Britain was ready for that kind of revolution. Um, Now, I don't know why, but I gave up a very well-paid, good, comfortable job in Fleet Street and threw my lot in with Sky News. But subsequently, it turned out to be a very good move. And I also, when I left the mirror, took my pension with me and transferred it. Two years later at Sky News, I was covering the death of Robert Maxwell, the mirror proprietor, mm. who disappeared off his yacht in the Canary Islands and had was exposed for stealing millions and millions of pounds of mirror staff pensions. So, you know, that again convinced me that God, I must have must have made the right decision to move. Well, a lot of cards fell into place at the right time by the sounds of it. Do you remember the first time then that they said, right, Martin, you're on camera, this is what you're reporting? Do you remember the sort of, if not the first case, at least one of the first cases you reported on? I, I do. Um you're probably driving at the first time I had to do a live report, which yeah. was this that was the thing that was looming for all of us we didn't do many live reports so for the first few months i um i was doing edited reports which means you have much more time to compile a report with all the recorded material at the end of the day but eventually and i knew it was going to happen um i was sent to a um a discovery of a of a bomb they thought an irish um ira bomb at a water facility in East London. And of course, I was told, get there, get the camera set up and come up and do a live report. And of course, when I got there, all the hacks that I used to work with in Fleet Street were there, poking fun at me, laughing at my discomfort. And I had to do 
my first live report and I was incredibly nervous. I had no idea what to say. I jotted down a few notes and I had a very good experienced cameraman with me who said, take a deep breath and just tell the story of what the facts are that you know. And I did that. I don't think it was terribly well done, but I got through it. I didn't dry up. And there were many more um, examples like that where, where I was always very uncomfortable for a long time about doing live reports. Um, eventually, things and me, I settled down and it became second nature, but it, it was very, very difficult for a long time. Can you talk me through your process? So you, you arrive at a scene of some event and you're about to go on, let's say you're five minutes out. What's going through your head at that point? Do you know what your opening gambit's going to be? What's your sort of thought process in that, in the minutes leading up to three, two, one, and you're live? Well, the, the first thing you learn is not to state the obvious because that will be read by the presenter in the link. I mean, yeah. one of the difficulties is when, you know, you, you arrive on the scene and you maybe know three facts and the presenter says those three facts in the link and then comes to you and says, um, what more do you know, Martin? And the reality is you don't know any more, but you kind of bluff it and you, in in a different way, you repeat what the presenter has just said. Um, and you can usually add a bit of colour from the scene around you. Um, but basically, you learn this as you go along. I mean, I probably write down five things and I can glance down at my notebook and you know, one, having done this for many years, I can talk on and on and on about each of those aspects. And I do perhaps get a bit repetitive. But I think you just need to tell people something they don't know. And if you're lucky, there will be things that our viewers haven't haven't heard. But if I've got time, of course, I will these days look at newspaper websites and glean something that my colleagues might have that I don't know. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. It seems like one of those roles that is such high pressure. But as, as an audience, I'm trying to think when I watch the news and they cut to someone, because typically with the news, most people, if they're like myself, will be kind of half watching the news. So as much as it's such a, a high pressure role, you kind of expect it to go perfect as a viewer. It's only mm. when you hear someone mumbling the words or forgetting where they are or stuttering or something that you sort of look up and think, hang on, what's going on? Do you remember any moments like that in your career when you thought, oh, that wasn't my best effort? Oh, there have been countless um, moments that weren't my best effort. I mean, I, I remember very early on, I used to hate sitting in the studio and talking to the presenter. I find that if I'm on a windswept street, I have much more leeway to, to um and ah and stop and start and so forth. I think viewers are probably a bit more forgiving mm. if you're out in the elements. I think in the studio, people expect things to be very slick, and uh, they haven't always been with me. And I'm not sure they always are these days, but there were a couple of – there was one occasion where it was a terror attack this is years and years ago, and I was still quite new. And I just dried up and I said, I'm sorry, I've lost my way. So the presenter asked another question um, and I started again. And, and again, I just said, look, I'm sorry, I've, I've lost my way. That was me letting nerves, 
overcome my thought processes. I don't think it would happen now. I mean, sometimes I do. Usually, if I go on a bit, uh, I, I'm confident enough to say, "Sorry, I'm rambling a bit." Ask me another question. And if they ask me a question I don't know the answer to, I just say, "Sorry, I don't know that." I mean, but let's talk about something else. Or the the classic get out um, is. Well, that's an important question, but there are bigger issues, and let me talk about those. Mm. Um, that's a bit of a put down to the presenter, but it gets makes you look clever and you know seamless, and and you move on. So you learn tricks, I suppose. Is is the short answer? What sort of stuff have you got going in from your ear? Because you you'll have the cameraman there. I assume giving you visual signals as to when you're yep. live. Who's yep. in the ear? Is it the producer? Is it the live feed from the studio, or is it both? It's, yeah, it's um, it's the producer. It sometimes is the director. Um, they try not to interfere too much. Sometimes the the comms get a bit confused, and you'll get something completely erroneous in your ear, or you'll suddenly hear another program. Um, and then, um, I mean, I'm confident enough now to say, look, um. I'm getting a lot of interference in my earpiece, so I'm going to take it out, and I'm just going to tell you right. what more I've got to tell you. That's that's the easiest way to deal deal with it. But you might get the producer saying, I mean, what what often happens is they'll come to me and they say, right, you know, we're coming to you in twenty seconds. Then you'll hear the program, you hear the presenter, and just as the presenter's talking, the producer will say. We've got that clip of the prime minister or of the lawyer. Um, introduce it when you're happy. Or, uh, so I know how to do that. I talk and then I say, we've just got this in. Or they'll say, that clip you were going <laughs> to, we've choreographed into your live report. We haven't got it anymore. And then you have to kind of think, well, I need to start, keep talking for a bit longer. But I actually quite enjoy when it's a bit erratic because i think if it looks a bit rough around the edges sometimes not too rough i think it gives the viewer a sense of immediacy that this is something's happening you know things are changing thing it's a dynamic story and i um i mean there was a the best example of that was during 77 london bombings um where I spent a month on the pavement outside New Scotland Yard doing constant live updates. The press office were telling us things all the time, developments. And there was one occasion where I was talking live into the camera and I sent some activity behind me and the head of press had come down and was briefing my rivals, my colleagues, right behind me. So I said to the presenter, just give me 10 seconds and I turned around, listened to what was being told, made a quick note, and went back. And so the viewers had this kind of interruption, but I kept it brief. And I went back and I said, like, this is the latest news. You know, somebody's been arrested or they found another bomb or something. And, and I think that was probably the best moment of live television as a kind of dynamic news story. Because you have worked on... A fair few high-profile cases. Mm. Having, having a look at one of the the ones in the so sort of five years into your tenure, there was the the Fred and Rose West. Everything yeah. came out about them in '94. I've done a special on that, which is absolutely awful what they did. 
What was it like working on such a high profile case as that? Because that unraveled over a long period of time as well. They would find another body, then a report would come back from one that had been found previously. What was it like working on that one? I, uh, I, it's probably difficult to use this word, but I really enjoyed working on it. I mean, crime reporters and police, you know, we talk a language that sometimes people outside our businesses don't really understand. But the, the simple way of describing it is that we rise to the challenge. You know, we want to be, as crime reporters, we want to be involved in the big stories. And the big, the biggest stories tend to be pretty grim, mm. you know. All stories are bad news for somebody, all crime stories. But the Fred and Rose West at the time felt like the grimmest story I've ever covered. And it still is. When I look back after all these years, nothing has come close to the depravity that they inflicted on all those young women, including their own daughter. So it was a challenging but exhilarating period, those Two or three months I spent in Gloucester uh, and just spoke to the most extraordinary people, often very vulnerable, you know, people who'd had terrible bad luck in their lives, been afflicted by illness, poverty, terrible dynamic home lives, and had kind of drifted to Cromwell Street and the streets around it. It was a, it was a pretty miserable place. But there was this extraordinarily gruesome story unraveling, a story that had been going on unknown for, for so many years. And the worst bit, and I describe this in the book, was Rose West's trial the following year and the evidence by her stepdaughter, Anne Marie, who gave evidence against Rose and described in chilling detail what her father, Fred, and her stepmother, Rose, did to her from the age of eight, almost on a nightly basis, taking her down to the cellar, strapping her into this contraption that the odd job man Fred had built, raping her, abusing her, and all the time telling her that we're doing this because this is how parents show their love for their children. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, there was a throwaway line towards the end of Amory's evidence, where she said she used to go to school the next morning, meet up with her classmates en route to the school, thinking that all her classmates were going through the same ordeal every night. And Amory thinking, well, this is normal. This is normal family behavior. I mean, I just, that's unbelievable, really, that that sort of thing should be inflicted on, particularly on young children. It is an incredibly disturbing case. Have you read the the book that Mae West wrote? She released it a couple of years ago. I, was... I haven't. Um, I've, really? I've read some. I, I, I'm a big fan of Howard Soons, who wrote the first book. Mm. Um, but um, yeah, the it, it's difficult to imagine how any of those children have survived, how they've lived. I mean, not all of them have, of course, but mm -hmm. how those that have survived have have lived and tried to come to terms with with what was done to them. It doesn't bear thinking about. I was reading from another interview you did on a bit of a lighter note after that, which is a bit mm. dark, of course. Can mm. you tell me about the incident when there was a load of magazines that you'd collected, which somehow found <laughs> their way uh, onto the floor? Can you tell me that story? 
Yes, that was um, so. That was part of my um, involvement in the Fred and West, Fred and Rose West uh, case. So within a few weeks of um, doing my own investigation, there it it we, we learned that Rose had been working as a prostitute, and as part of her marketing, if you like, she had submitted naked semi-naked photographs to contact magazines now these things don't exist anymore because of the internet but these were pre-internet days so uh women who worked like that um working girls um and all sorts of people in the sex industry would submit photographs to uh magazines that were compiled so if you wanted to hire the services uh, of such people you would buy a contact magazine i can't even remember i suppose they were available in sex shops um mm. that we used to have um on some high streets so i'd gone round to all the news agents and sex shops i could in the area trying to find an example of a photograph of rose i mean i didn't know that she'd submitted photographs but i hope she had and i did eventually find one but i turned up at home many miles from gloucester one night and I had all these magazines stacked in my boot of my car. And the next morning, a neighbor told me that my car had been broken into, the wheels had been taken, and uh, they'd smashed a window. And it just so happens that my car was opposite, in a lay-by opposite the local school. By the time I got down there to see what was happening, the car was open, the windows were smashed, Parents were walking past with their little children to this primary school, and all these sex magazines were floating around the street um, for their, there for everybody to see. So I quickly scooped them all up and threw them back into the car and tried to um, try to make amends. But some people had seen what I had in the back of my car and trying to explain that they were part of my professional job raised a few eyebrows. <sighs> I could imagine. So you do discuss all this kind of stuff in the book. Again, it's called No One Got Cracked Over the Head for No Reason. Can you just tell me how that book came about, how you thought I need to put all my, well, a lot of my interesting stories in paperback form because the public need to read this book. I never thought about writing a book. It's a cliche that all journalists have a book or at least one in them. And I, it never occurred to me, but I got to know an agent Um and somebody else suggested I did a book, somebody else in the industry. And what drove it, I suppose, was the fact that for many years, people had always said to me when I'd regaled them with whatever story I was working on, you must write a book. So I did, and I hope they were right. Um, the agent managed to sell the idea. But basically, I was told I can't just write about the stories I've covered. I can't just do a kind of greatest hits. I have to tell the stories behind the stories, which I always thought I would, because often they're as interesting as the headlines themselves, sometimes more interesting. And they're certainly new things that the public doesn't know, how you get a story, what you have to do to stand it up, you know, and, and the things that you don't use in the story for one reason or another. Um, but I was also persuaded that I needed to explain people's fascination with crime as far as I could something I'd never really considered. I mean, it was good that there was this phenomenon of interest in true crime because it kept me in a in a good job for so many years. 
Um, and there were the other themes of the changes in policing I'd observed and the changes in the relationship between police officers and crime reporters. And, you know, there have been a lot of those, certainly in the last dozen years or so. Um, so I eventually sat down. Uh, and then as I went on, it was a question of what do I leave out, really? Um, and then honed it down into a, what I hope is a readable, but also informative and most of all, an entertaining read. Um, being entertaining in the crime world, maybe not, doesn't sound quite right. But I think people, if you want people to buy a book, they need to be engaged and gripped. And I, I see that as a kind of form of entertainment. So it's done. I can't quite believe I did it while I was holding down a full-time erratic job. And it could have been better. I acknowledge that. But um, hopefully people will enjoy it. Yeah, it's published by Biteback Publishing. It was released April 25th, 2023. I'm going to put a link in the description of this episode so you can all have a look and give that a purchase, hopefully, and give it a good read. I do agree with the entertaining aspect. You kind of, part of you feels, is it wrong that I'm trying to make such horrid stories entertaining, but then you can't just tell it in a factual way that's not gripping because people want to learn about it. You've got to keep them engaged. So I can completely get where you're coming from. But just to remind everyone, no one got cracked over the head for no reason. Dispatches from a crime reporter by Martin Brunt. Please do pick that up. Martin, I think we've run out of time on your booked office there. That's partly my fault for the audio not working at the start. So apologies for rushing through that a little bit. But I appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on. And I'm sure my audience will be thrilled to read your new book. Thanks, too. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Perfect. Thank you.